great to be here. Thank you for having me, um, and especially great to be part of these birthday celebrations. Um, what I wanted to share with you tonight is that I'm thinking about eating. I'm not trying to tell you that my stomach is rumbling, though I suspect it may be. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to feel a little bit peckish. Um, but then again, it's quite easy to feel peckish much of the time in the modern world. You go into Boots and you try and buy a bar of soap and you suddenly see an aisle that says snacking. Um, then you switch on your computer to try and fight the urge to eat and you see one of those strange overhead videos that shows disembodied hands making a pizza. I recently found out that these food porn videos, many of which are made by BuzzFeed and which didn't exist in the world at all before the year 2015, they're now the third most viewed thing on the whole of the internet. Um, third only after music videos and actual pornography. Um, so when I say I'm thinking about eating, what I'm saying is that I've been trying to take stock of modern eating for a new book that I've been writing and how eating has become so complicated, not to mention so unlike the meals of the past. I've been thinking about the good, the terrible, and the avocado toast, which seems to be inescapable. It strikes me that there are two big stories that get told about food today. One of them's a bit like a fairy tale, and the other one's a bit like a horror story. And the part that nobody says is that both of these stories are true. The happy version of the story goes something like this. Humans have never in history been lucky enough to be fed as well as we are right now. Deficiency diseases such as scurvy, pellagra, and beriberi are terrors mostly, though not entirely, banished to the past. And this is one of the great miracles of modernity. Until the 20th century, the threat of famine was a universal aspect of existence across the world. Harvests failed, populations starved. For anyone but the wealthy, food wasn't something to be relied on. World hunger may still be with us, but mass starvation is no longer, thankfully, a normal feature of human existence in most countries. In 1947, the United Nations calculated that half of everyone on the planet was chronically undernourished. Today, it's something more like one in nine, and over the same period, world population has hugely expanded. Yes, to our shame, we now have food banks, which are a new phenomenon in rich cities, but absolute hunger is much rarer than it once was. Advances in farming technology over the course of the 20th century made massively more food available to vastly more people. A modern combine harvester can harvest in six minutes what it once took 25 men a day to do. And perhaps the greatest of all changes came about through the invention of the Harbour Bosch process in the 1910s. I was just wondering how many people in this room know about the Harbour Bosch process. Do you want to put up your hand if that is something that just trips off your tongue over the dinner table? Just, okay, just Rosie. I, well, obviously Rosie knows about it. Um, so Harbour Bosch is a method for synthesizing ammonia. And it was the secret um, that made highly effective nitrogen fertilizers cheap to produce for the first time. Vaclav Smil, a Canadian expert on land use and food production, has calculated that as of 2002, 
40% of people in the world owed their existence to the Harbour Bosch process. So think about it. If Smill is right, and who knows, a hundred of us in this room wouldn't exist without it. And yet none of us have heard of it. Um, whereas I suspect if I said to you the name Hagendas, um, you probably have heard of it. And that's just a completely fake random name that was dreamt up by a businessman in 1961 to try and make ice cream sound a little bit Danish and therefore more appetizing. And maybe the fact that we've heard of Hagendas and not Harbour Bosch is still part of this fairy tale. Maybe it's a really good sign. Because in a way, it's a sign of how incredibly lucky we are that at this particular moment, it's the only time in history that we have lived taking abundance for granted, taking food for granted. More food is produced each year than ever. For the first time in humanity's history, the food problem was being solved, writes the Swedish historian Johan Norberg in his 2016 book, Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. Norberg is one of these self-styled new optimists who think we'd be crazy to want to go back and eat in those good old days, because in those good old days, people were mixing tree bark into flour to make it go further. By contrast, if you think of how many of us eat today, we have instant access to almost preposterous amounts of food, of a freshness, of a variety our grandparents couldn't have imagined. In the city where I live, I could do a three-minute walk, north, south, east, and west. This direction would take me to an amazing Chinese supermarket and a South Asian grocer where I could get falafels and samosas and every kind of fresh herb. And that direction, I can go to a health food co-op where I can get sourdough and all these ancient grains and organic apples. And there and there and there and there and there are supermarkets which sell me fresh berries and olive oil and all these things. And any time on a Sunday night, I might head out to any one of these shops and I find that the exact precise thing that I desired at exactly that moment isn't there. Parmesan has suddenly run out. I feel this mild sense of consternation. Outrageous! Because my expectation that I can eat exactly what I want at the precise moment I want to eat it has been scuppered. In the developed world, those of us who are not on the breadline are living in a new age of delicious, liberated from the last vestiges of post-war austerity. The decline of hunger has gone with a bright new dawn of flavor. The British have fallen in love with sumac and skier, with sushi and smoked paprika. Never have so many cups of heavenly-tasting coffee been topped with so many variations of beautiful latte art. Yet this omnipresence of food has created its own difficulties. Widely available cheap food can look like a dream or it can look like a nightmare. It's hard to accept Norberg's assertion that the food problem has been fixed when diets now cause more death and disease in the world than any other single factor, including tobacco and alcohol. For the first time in human history, more people are obese than underweight. In recent years, the concept of malnutrition has been widened to take in obesity as well as absolute hunger. In middle-income countries like Brazil, rising numbers of people are both under and overnourished at the same time, suffering from a surfeit of calories but a lack of basic micronutrients and protein. 
There's a rising tide of evidence that the lead cause of these diseases is what nutritionists would call suboptimal diet and what to most people is just food. Somewhere in the world, a new branch of Domino's Pizza opened every seven hours in 2016. Poor quality diets full of highly marketed cheap foods and low in vegetables have become the single greatest risk factor for global ill health. Too often what is sold as food fails in its basic task, which is to nourish. You walk into the average supermarket and you're greeted by aisle upon aisle of salty, oily snacks and sugary cereals, of bread that's been neither proved nor fermented, of cheap sweetened drinks. And these huge changes to modern diet have gone hand in hand with other vast social transformations, the rise of cars, dishwashers, electronic screens, which have left us far less active than earlier generations, gym membership or not. In just a few decades, these alterations to how we eat and live have left unmistakable marks on human health. In the 1950s, fewer than 100 million people in the world were overweight or obese. By 2010, the figure was 1.6 billion. Where humans used to live in fear of plague and war, now the leading cause of mortality is diet. It strikes me that we're the first generation to be hunted by our own food. For millennia, the human predicament was to be always on a quest for more energy. Today, we're often running to escape it. And yet, the fairy tale about food can't be completely discounted. I was going to give a completely trivial example. In Victorian London, it was said that you couldn't buy pure mustard anywhere in the entire city because it was so adulterated. Whereas today, I can walk north, south, east, west, go into any of those shops, and I can find Dijon, whole grain, hot English, smooth American. And the chances are it's going to be pretty pure. It's all there for us, like a magic porridge pot that never dries up. How do we reconcile these two stories? I think the first thing to acknowledge is that both of them are true, strange as it seems. The fairy tale and the horror story coexist often on the same plate because both are elements in a new reality of food that affects us all. As countries develop and industrialize, one of the things that happens without fail is that the food system changes. There's someone called Barry Popkin, who's professor of nutrition at the University of North Carolina, and he named this phenomenon the nutrition transition. So as countries become wealthier and people move into cities and away from the land, we change the way we eat almost inexorably. People snack more, they eat more meat, they eat more sugar, they eat more processed foods. They also start to spend a much smaller percentage of their income on food, which is in some ways a blessing and in other ways a curse. The big question which I wanted to end with the big question raised by the nutrition transition is whether we can have the fairy tale without the horror story. Can we have modern prosperity without the bad food that usually goes with it? So far, only a very few countries have managed to do this. Japan is one. South Korea, which I wanted to talk about, is another. South Korea passed through the nutrition transition in lightning time, without experiencing anything like the same consequences of a changing diet now being seen in Brazil and Mexico or South Africa. From the 60s to the 90s, almost everything about life in South Korea changed. 
GDP grew an astonishing 17-fold. South Koreans acquired TVs and microwaves. But amazingly, Koreans went through this transition and not only ate as many vegetables as before, they actually started to eat slightly more vegetables. This is almost unprecedented. How did Korea manage it? That's a whole other talk in itself. But there are a couple of things I wanted to say. The first thing is cultural. In South Korea, unlike in Britain, there's a culture in which vegetables are considered delicious. In Britain, cabbage, despite the best efforts of Otolenghi, is still a joke. If you say the term cabbage to the average child, it's like a threat. Whereas in South Korea, fermented cabbage, kimchi, it's an object of desire, much as sugar would be in Britain. But the second thing is that the government of South Korea quite deliberately intervened to protect this traditional food culture. Rather than simply welcoming in the big multinational snack companies, as so many other countries did, South Korea made a concerted effort to protect its own cooking. It offered free cooking workshops and mass media campaigns to support local food and farming. So South Korea remains a remarkable proof that it is possible to attain some kind of golden midway point between the wholesome but scarce diets of the past and the plentiful but unhealthy diets of the present. But it's only possible to reach this happy point by recognizing as a society that food does actually matter, that high quality food is itself actually part, a large part of what it means to be prosperous. We need both collectively and individually to pay attention to the quality of food as well as the quantity. If we want to stop being hunted by our own food, we need to start using our own senses again, learning to distinguish what's edible and what's not. We need to start teaching our children how to protect themselves and hold on to what's good in a world of junk food marketing. I'm part of a new group that's bringing a new system of food education to Britain called Flavor School, which is doing exactly that. But it would also be quite nice if we lived in a world that policed junk food better so children didn't have to be protected from it so much. Sometimes it seems as if we simply don't recognize how much we all owe to food. Food is what got us here tonight. It was Harbour Bosch, although that comes with mixed feelings as everything to do with modern food. Harbour Bosch and maybe Hagen does too. The simple truth is that food is valuable. And that's something that our hungry ancestors could never have forgotten for a single second. When food was scarce, we had no choice but to value it, to be alert to what it did to our bodies and what we needed from it. The great mistake of our abundant modern times, and this plays out in so many ways, both large and small, has been to think that food was something we could take for granted. Thank you. <laughs>